What's up, everyone? Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brentsberger. You could also call me your in-app astronomer. And I have got our special, special guest today, Dr. Kirby Runyon, um, on our show. I've been hyping him up, I think, since like maybe my first episode here on Space Talk. Uh, so I cannot wait to just jump into this conversation with him. Dr. Kirby Runyon is a planetary geologist and exploration architect at the John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, or APL. At the at APL, he conducts cratering experiments by flinging sand, which and works on a consortium consortium <laughs> focused on technology for the moon. We're gonna have to go over that word and learn a little bit about what that means. He studies planetary surfaces from spacecraft images and generally has fun exploring the solar system. More importantly, he's a lifelong space enthusiast who loves to enthusiate others with his own enthusiasm for space exploration. The cosmos is more than something to know. The cosmos is something to experience. One more thing that Kirby has been doing, he has become one of the zero gravity coaches for zero G flights. So I'm so excited to pick his brain about that. And I've never met anyone as enthusiastic about space as I am, uh, except for Kirby. So hello, hello, and thank you for coming on the show, Kirby. Hey, Athena, it's my pleasure to be on your show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. Uh, just a reminder to everyone, if you guys ever have any questions, um, you can utilize the chat feature. You can send over an emoji if, if you like something you hear. Um, or, of course, towards the end of our episode, we're going to turn to the audience and ask you guys about some questions, if you have any questions. So, Kirby, oh, so many things to talk about. So we just did an episode last week um, about dwarf planets. Ah. So, of course, of course, you know, you know we, I, I right away thought of you. We were kind of exploring how dwarf planets get their names, uh, you know, basically came to understanding that they're mainly, you know, named after Greek and Roman gods. Um, but uh, as a planetary geologist, um, what is one of your favorite things, I would say, about dwarf planets? Okay, so my favorite thing about dwarf planets is that they are the most common type of planet in the solar system. They outnumber the giant planets, they outnumber the terrestrial planets by a huge margin. Look, we know of at least 130 icy dwarf planets in our solar system, compared with only four giant planets, and compared with, depending on how you count, four or five terrestrial planets. And so even though they're small, they're the most common type of planet, and what's so cool about them is that most of them probably started off with liquid water in their interiors in contact with hot rock. So Whoa. those are the ingredients for life, at least for habitability. You could take existing microbes, stick them there, and they'd be happy. So we think in the first half billion to billion years of the solar system's history and the first half billion to billion years of the dwarf planet's history, they were probably habitable ocean worlds. And so really... It's these tiny little planets, you know, Pluto-sized and a little bit smaller, orbiting the sun beyond Neptune that we really need to find new ways of exploring um, because they could be some of the most astrobiologically interesting places in the solar system. How is, How it, is it... Oh, I hear a little bit of an echo. Okay, good. That's gone. How is it possible that they could have had water at some point, but now they're like totally cold. I mean, the, the, I think Pluto has like a, a layer of, of ice on it, right. correct? Yeah. So, um, so, you know, when planets form, including dwarf planets, you've got comets and asteroids and Kuiper belt objects, these, these building blocks, these Lego pieces of planets. 
And so they're colliding together, sometimes at up to a, a few kilometers per second. And so, um, you know, if you, if you do like your, your basic freshman physics, uh, kinetic energy equals one half mv squared. And that v squared, that velocity squared, that's got to go somewhere. And a lot of that energy gets turned into heat. And that heat can uh, melt a lot of the ices. Also, early on in the solar system, there were more short-lived radioactive uh, elements like aluminum-26 and radioactive uh, isotopes of potassium and things like that. And as these radioactive elements decayed, they, they gave off heat. And so between mm. the heat of planetary accretion and the heat from radioisotope uh, radiogenic decay... Uh, there would have been uh, enough heat to to sustain to have some liquid water on the inside. Now, okay. over, over the last you know four and a half billion years, by being small, they they cooled off quickly. Of course, so when something's small, it has a high surface area to volume ratio. If you take that, if you do that division equation between its its surface area, number of square meters, and its and its volume, that those number of cubic meters, and if that number's big, it'll cool off quickly. Okay, so so basically, the right amount of elements were present in order to give off heat for there to be water to form. But then, because they were so small and so far away from the sun, they cooled off so much that the water ended up just not being there anymore in liquid form. Right, right. Now, we think that Pluto actually still has a liquid water ocean underneath a very thick ice crust. Um, one thing that you can also do to make uh, it liquid is by adding natural antifreeze in the form of ammonia. Uh, there's a mm. lot of ammonia in the outer solar system, uh, which has the chemical formula NH3, one nitrogen and three hydrogens. And that can make the melting point uh, uh, or the freezing point of water really cold, like negative 40 Celsius or more. Oh, so wow. You can make it easier for it to be liquid. But there's nothing that says that life can't live in, in water that, that's even that cold. So... Um, so right, like planets, you, you yeah, could have I, like extremophiles that can survive under these like really really cold conditions, yeah, um, or even icy conditions, uh, and maybe even hibernate too. And, and like, there, I, there are some species of frog that that go into freeze, like freeze mode. They literally freeze and they come back to life um, once they defrost, uh, and and their heart stops. Put microwave, put it in the microwave for defrost. Oh my gosh! No, I don't want to think about that. It's terrible. Um, well, well, that's 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 so cool. So, if what would you say are most interesting to you, the moons of the solar system or the dwarf planets of the solar system? Um, it's wow. Uh, that's a that's a that's a mean question, Athena. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, well, which one do you think would have the probability of life existing? potentially like small microbial life, you know, maybe something really tiny. Uh, if, if we end up finding it, do you think it would be probably within the moons of the solar system or maybe somewhere within the dwarf planets? I'm if you think it's possible, give, I'm going to give a slight edge to Saturn's moon Enceladus. Uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. It's a beautiful little moon, only 500 kilometers in diameter. It's only about a hundred kilometers larger than what an object needs to be to be considered a planet under the geophysical definition. So at around 400 kilometers, an icy object kind of goes from being lumpy to being round by its own self-gravity. And so Enceladus is just barely big enough to be round. And it's got this liquid water ocean that it's even sharing with space. You've got these eruptive geysers in the South Pole spewing out water. Um, there's some kind of warm rock in contact with that water at fairly low pressure because Enceladus's gravity is so weak. Um, so... That being said, 
Enceladus might not have had that liquid for the length of the solar system. But see, that's one of the problems. We don't know how long it takes for life to emerge once the conditions are right. So Enceladus is a great place to look, but only just barely. I mean, I'd also want to look on Europa, and I'd want to go study the geology and geophysics of all 130 known dwarf planets um, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and see what we can tell from the geology as to whether they were ever habitable, even if they're not now. Yeah, yeah, so there's a hundred and, getting a little bit of an echo. Okay, that's gone. A hundred and thirty dwarf planets in yeah. the solar system. Wow, that, that's a big number. Yeah. What are there any projects that you're currently working on at the moment um, that is tied to the moons of our solar system? Uh, I'm working a lot with Earth's moon right now. Okay. Uh, closest planetary body to Earth, or as I like to say, the closest planet to Earth is the moon. So I'm doing a lot with the, the moon. The closest right planet to Earth. Explain. Yeah, so I like to be provocative. Um, <laughs> the moon, I mean, the moon, by the geophysical planet definition that a lot of us planetary geologists use, the moon is big enough to be round by its own self-gravity. And the geophysical planet definition doesn't care what something is orbiting. So, um, in fact, Galileo himself, who discovered the moons of Jupiter, called them satellite planets. It wasn't, they were satellite planets orbiting a primary planet, but they were all planets. And so the moon is still a moon, but it's a small planet orbiting a big planet, Earth. And um, so, so uh, that's, that's why a, a lot of us consider the moon to be a, a planet. And it is the only planet where humans have ever walked besides Earth. And uh, that just really excites me to think that people have gone there and will go there soon. When was it that the definition of the planet changed? Because we were looking this up recently when we were talking about dwarf planets, and it's you know an object that, as you mentioned, is able to be like in the shape of a sphere, um, does orbit the sun, um, and has cleared its neighborhood of any other like debris, like the Kuiper Belt objects. So when was it that that was a thing instead of saying that the moon is, you know, a, a satellite planet that it's actually, uh, you know, its own celestial body entity. It gets its own name and its own definition because it's orbiting around the, the earth as opposed to the sun being its sort of direct, direct body of mass that it's orbiting. Yeah. Well, it depends who you talk to. If you talk to me, the moon's a planet. If you talk to a lot of other professional <laughs> planetary scientists, the moon is a planet. And, the reason for that is that we just ignore the quote-unquote official definition um, because here's the thing. The quote-unquote official definition, uh, the IAU definition that has that uh, business about orbit clearing, um, was not voted on by planetary scientists. It was voted on by astronomers who study black holes and galaxies and nebulas, and, and that's, all, that's all great, but they don't study planets. And so it's and, – and honestly, very few people in our profession actually use the quote-unquote official definition. So I have to ask if – none of the professionals are using the official definition. Is the definition really official? So just like every other word in the English language that gets its definition just from the way people use it and without voting on it, um, a lot of us in the business call these, these round moons and dwarf planets planets uh, because that's, a useful, that's just a useful term for us. So there's no, there's no voting. There's no, uh, official, there's no official definition. It's just the definition that's used which makes me think that it's more official than the official definition. I really, I really like, like that. that. I think that it's it's pretty important to kind of question 
what our, uh, I guess our standards are, right? Like what, what we kind of like standardize when it comes to understanding the physical world around us. And then of course, you know, expanding that out to space. Cause if there was an alien civilization, what would, what would they call these celestial bodies? Like, would they call them something different or would they say, oh, well, this is very similar to the celestial body we reside on. So it must be, you know, two of the same, uh, yeah. So I, I guess that's, yeah, that, that's a really, really interesting way to think about it too. And also kind of uh, pushing back on the more, I guess, accepted term. Cause like whenever I do read about, you know, the moon or I read about other moons, it's like, a, it's always been called a moon. Uh, it has its own name. It has its own word, its own definition with it, as opposed to, you know, a planet. Like if I was in, in, in elementary school and I did, did a test on, you know, w- what is um, the object called that is a satellite of earth, I wouldn't select planet, I would select moon. And so we're kind of taught this from such a young age. And here Kirby would be, you know, in my, in my same classroom, and he'd be like, no, I disagree. This must be, <laughs> this must be a planet. Um, moons, it's just, it's, there's still moons, but they can also be planets. Things can have more than one definition. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, something that I really loved that you said a few years ago, I don't know if it was an interview that we did together on like, an Instagram live or, or, or something, maybe, I don't think it was an Instagram live or maybe it was in person, but it was, um, yeah, it was along the lines of like the, 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 the name dwarf planet. And you're like, it's still a planet. It's, it's a planet. It's just, just because it has the word dwarf in front doesn't mean that it's, you know, that much different. And if anything, that is actually very encouraging and exciting to kind of like tell kids about, you know, and like, do you want them to know that there's only, you know, like eight main planets of the solar system. And then there's all these other objects we should just, you know, learn about later in high school or in college. No, I think that they would be so much more uh, exciting for them to think about the potentials of there being these other objects that are also planets. Because another misleading thing I realized last week when we were exploring dwarf planets was that my understanding as a kid, when I learned about uh, like the terrestrial planets being the ones closest to the sun and the gas giants being the furthest from the sun, I thought, oh, terrestrial planets must always be close to the sun, but you have Pluto, which is a terrestrial planet. And that is further than the gas giants. Um, and so, so you kind of like, I guess almost you can miss this opportunity of a really beautiful teaching moment for kids and then the potential of other exoplanetary systems. Oh, totally. And, I, and I'm glad you mentioned that. And I totally agree, Athena. Um, you know, we talk a lot about in society about the goodness of diversity and how diversity is a good thing. And when you include dwarf planets in the census of the solar system as being the most common type of planet, all of a sudden you throw wide open the doors doors to understanding the planetary diversity in our solar system. And if dwarf planets are the most common type of planet in our solar system, then they're almost certainly the most common type of planet, not just in the galaxy, but in the universe. So small planets like Pluto with uh, an icy exterior and a liquid water interior that are just a few thousand kilometers in diameter, pretty small by planetary standards, they're probably the most common type of planet in the entire universe. And when you have that mindset of this is small, but it's still a planet, it's just as much a planet as Jupiter or Earth, because if you listen to Yoda, size matters not, then it sort of opens your mind to uh, the huge uh, potential for uh, the origin of life, for different kinds of life, for um, and I'm a geologist, so incredibly different types of geologic landforms and beautiful landscapes on um, so many different types of planets. Um, 
there's a there's a saying in Star Trek credited to the Vulcans, uh, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And I love that. And I do love that. When you have an inclusive definition of planet that includes everything from um, from like super Jupiters, like 10 Jupiter masses around other stars to tiny dwarf planets the size of not just Pluto, but even smaller things maybe you haven't heard of, like Ix- Ixion and Haumea and Makemake and Quayoar and Gong Gong. Um, it just opens your mind to the staggering diversity in the in the solar system and, and, the, and indeed the whole universe. Yeah, I think that a big thing is that a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea of sort of the fact that science can change. Things in science can change. Uh, not fundamental, you know, science in a way, but, but like other things, right? Like, especially when it comes to uh, astrophysics, like things change a lot within the field of space in general, because as we learn more, as we discover more, that's sort of reshaping the way that we've understood or looked at things before, obviously as technology gets better. Uh, so, so what would you have to say to someone who is a little bit more stubborn, uh, is a little bit more set in their ways and they're like, I've always learned it to be like this. And so this is what it is. And I don't care about anyone else. Like, I don't, I don't care what else you tell me other information. This is my reality. What, what would yeah, you say to someone yeah, like that? That's a really good question. And there's, um, we have to understand that behind every question is a questioner. So oftentimes it's not enough to answer the question objectively. You also have to kind of get at the at the personality and the cares and concerns of the person behind that. Um, it's really comforting to have things in life that that never change. Um, and change can be exciting, but it can also be disconcerting. Um, science is all about um, getting at the truth um, progressively, like by iteratively, like cyclically almost. It's like you you come up with, you know, first we had Newton's laws of motion and they're basically right for most applications. And then we realized in the late 1800s and then the early 1900s and then then Einstein sort of, you know, dotted that I and crossed that T with general relativity that 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 um, Newton's laws of motion are not all there is to say about motion. We now know about things like time dilation and length contraction that are attributes of, of, of that when things, when things move close to the speed of light, uh, weird things happen. And so, you know, it's not that Newton's laws were wrong. They were just kind of incomplete, but, um, really that can be a comforting thing in science is even if we don't get it completely right to begin with science is self-correcting. Um, we, we, we look at the evidence and we reject, we, we, we reject things that we've been able to disprove and we hold on to things that we're not able to disprove. I mean, strictly speaking, in science, you can never prove something. You can only disprove alternatives. And so that means that you're never 100% sure, but you can still be 99.9% sure. And, and um, even though belief is not really a part of science, um, it's good enough to believe in, um, as I like to say. So um, whether we're talking about the efficacy of vaccines coming out of COVID, um, uh, we can trust the science gone into vaccines and get a shot. Um, we can trust the science of climate change. We can trust the science of astrophysics, even if it's not 100% right. It's 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 really close, and the parts that aren't right uh, get self-corrected over time. So that over time, you get closer and closer and closer to absolute truth. Wow. 
Wow. That, that, that's going to be a highlight clip right there. I could just feel it. So I'm going to, I'm going to clip that. I just quoted that on Twitter. So just, <laughs> just this, I just sent it out right now. I get more people okay. to join, but that's, that was so good, Kirby. Thank you. Thank you for, for kind of sharing that, that perspective and that point of view. This, you know, this is really why I love having you on, you know, various shows that, that I tend to host because it's always, I always know that there's so much more that I could already, that I could expect beforehand, um, of how our conversation is going to go. Uh, so, so I kind of want to make a turn here into uh, some of your work on flinging sand in your cratering experiment. So why are you flinging sand and what is a cratering experiment? Yeah. So Athena, you and I have been talking about this for a couple of years as it comes up occasionally in my research. But so yes, you're right. I do fling sand sometimes. Um, and uh, in fact, half my PhD is on flinging sand. But it's, um, it's, the reason we're doing this is, is to simulate the effects of impact cratering on other planetary surfaces. So when a meteoroid or an asteroid hits a planetary surface, it's going really fast, like multiple kilometers or miles per second. And it, 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 it shatters itself on impact and it digs this big old hole in the ground and the stuff, the rocky material, material that was in the hole gets flung out, it gets ejected. So we call it ejecta. And it forms this like 45, the slanted curtain, 45 degree curtain of this, this wall of pulverized rock, like an avalanche from the sky. It'd be terrifying if you could like, if you were standing like right next to a crater as it formed, because you'd have this huge wall of boulders and sand and gravel flying at you really fast and then landing and forming this really thick deposit of junk. And then it continues to flow outward from the crater for a really long time. So these are incredibly violent episodes. They're, they're sort of analogous to like landslides off mountain slopes on Earth or, or avalanches. Um, and, uh, and so they're one of the most common geologic processes around the solar system. Now, um, we study impact cratering on Earth by using hypervelocity guns to shoot projectiles into like sandy targets and then study how the crater forms and um the nasa ames vertical gun range in california um is is maybe the most famous one for doing this we have a small cratering gun at at where i work johns hopkins apl uh as well where we can form craters but the, the craters are small they're just a few centimeters across and they don't create a lot of ejecta so to get around that lack of ejecta problem we built this basically it's like a human-sized mouse trap you know that like an old-fashioned mousetrap with that like thing that like that that springs that that's on that pivot and spring. Yeah, yeah. that's like uh, basically like that, but it's like the size of a person. It's roughly like a square meter or like a square yard, and um, and and we use like this jeep winch and a car battery or like one of those like starter kits if your car is stalled um, to like winch it back. We load it with gravel. Then we've got high-speed cameras, and we've got like this 3D scanner, um, and we we let it fling. And and when it when the catapult flings forward, the sand comes off the catapult as like a slanted wall of sand or gravel or pumice or whatever we put on there, um, and then it lands on various targets. And basically, we're simulating uh, this sort of ejecta emplacement on a planetary surface, but uh, we're able to use like like close to 10 kilograms worth of material, which is way more than you get uh, in a cratering experiment. And you don't have to form a crater. I mean, my employer would probably think pretty poorly if we like buried explosives <laughs> in the lawn and made like an explosion crater and then studied the ejector that came out of that. Cause you can only do that a few times um, 
you know, before before you destroy the before you destroy the landscaping. Um, so this way we don't have to like it's fun as that would be. We don't have to form craters this way, but we can still study the the ejecta. Um, what have you, what guys, have you guys found yeah. so 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 far? What have we found so far? Yeah, uh, one of the discoveries from my PhD about five years ago was that when ejecta lands, it shears the subsurface dirt a lot. It's like, um, wow, how do I want to, okay. It's like, um, when, when, when it lands, we can, we, we have these clear sided target boxes and I basically use like color, different colors of cat litter, basically, um, <laughs> like the clay clumping, not clumping, but like that clay cat litter, um, from one cat person to another, you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're, I talking, know what you're about. talking about. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And um, we had red sand deposited, or red gravel, de- or sorry, red litter deposited on blue litter. And in the before and after images, you can watch grains uh, in the subsurface of the target that get sheared downrange. They never touched any of the red ejecta particles. They just got sheared. And that was really reminiscent. That really reminded us of uh, different faults in the impact ejecta around craters on earth that people have studied. So in Germany, there's a really large crater called the Ries crater. In fact, the town of Ries, Germany is built inside that crater. And a lot of the uh, stone that the buildings are made out of are actually made out of rock created an impact crater. It's called a swayavite. It's this cooled impact melt. Um, and there are these faults where the subsurface, the underground parts got sheared. They got, uh, they got displaced and shoved away from the crater by this bulk of ejecta landing on top of it and flowing away. And so we were able to replicate in the lab what people have observed in nature, but never got to witness it happening. Um, So that was one big discovery for my PhD. Um, Lately, we've been doing new experiments using ridiculously fine-grained volcanic pumice. So um, sometimes in whitening toothpaste, they put in like this really fine uh, volcanic pumice, basically just tiny pieces of rock. That, that help polish your teeth and like dentists like polishing drills or whatever use this stuff and um, it's used abrasion and other stuff um, and there's natural deposits uh, around earth there's there's one place in Idaho in particular that has a lot of this and uh, we got we got pumice that's really fine grained it's about 25 microns in diameter 25 microns for comparison beach sand is about 500 microns in diameter uh, uh, so this is pretty thick. This is really thin. This is really... Wait, really thin. Sorry, you said it was five microns as opposed to 500 microns? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. It's tiny. 25 microns in diameter compared to 500 microns. I mean, this stuff is like dust. This is like, this is like, this is like bucketfuls of dust. And um, lately, we've been interested in understanding cratering on the planet Venus. Venus is one of the, I mean, for being the closest planet besides the moon to Earth, uh, it's Venus has not been explored nearly as much as the moon or Mars or a lot of other planets. And I like to joke for being the goddess of love, Venus sure doesn't get any. So, <laughs> um, what, you know, just, uh, about a year ago, NASA selected two new missions to go back to Venus and study the surface geology for the first time since the mid nineties. Uh, the Magellan spacecraft was the last mission to kind of map the surface with radar in 1994 from 1989 to 1994. Um, and it's got coarse resolution maps. And so we're going back with much higher resolution radar instruments to pierce through the opaque clouds um, and to uh, map the surface in greater detail than we've ever done before. Now, Venus only has about 900 craters on the surface that we've seen from the Magellan radar. 
because Venus's atmosphere is so thick. And so most asteroids burn up in the atmosphere. And also we think Venus is really geologically active with a lot of volcanoes that erupt lava and cover up impact craters. So, we, so they, it destroys impact craters to the volcanoes. And so um, now Venus's atmosphere is so thick. It's like 90 times Earth's atmospheric pressure. It's almost like being underwater, really. Um, and, uh, and so when an impact crater forms, unlike the moon where it's a vacuum, you have this incredibly thick atmosphere that entrains boulders and cobbles and other rocky debris that gets scooped out of craters. And the atmosphere on Venus, we think, plays a much bigger role in controlling the ejecta coming out of craters as well as the formation of the crater itself than anywhere else in the solar system. Um, uh, with possible exceptions of Earth, Mars, and Titan, uh, Saturn's largest moon that has also has a thick atmosphere. Yeah, Titan, yeah, Titan is, is a very, very interesting, interesting moon. moon. It, it, uh, so are you looking to do research on Titan as well? Yeah. So the research that I'm doing, is it's primarily motivated by Venus, but it's applicable to uh, especially Mars and especially Titan as well. So um, I just had a presentation uh, earlier this month. We're recording in March of 2020. And I had a presentation at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference down in Houston and uh, presented on our very preliminary results of when we take this pumice uh, and simulating conditions on Venus create uh, an ejected deposit. And on our very first experiment, let me back up and explain something a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we don't want to have to create this huge, dangerous Venus environment chamber on Earth. It'd be really infeasible to like make the room with 90 times Earth's atmospheric pressure. Um, and we wouldn't want to heat it to 800 degrees Celsius. And we would not want to have sulfuric acid vapor in there. So um, instead of Which, doing, by yeah, the way, for those who don't know, are all things you could find on Venus. Yes. <laughs> so if you yeah. landed on Venus, you would you would be burned, crushed, and dissolved in acid simultaneously. <laughs> oh my god! Oh geez, just <laughs> the harshest, harshest body. Yeah. Um, and so um, because Venus's atmosphere is so thick, things like boulders can get blown around and 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 carried along by the wind really easily when a crater is forming. Um, we can't entrain boulders in the air terribly easily in our laboratory here in Laurel, Maryland. Um, so instead of having boulders entrained in a 90-bar atmosphere, we have teeny tiny little pumice grains, 25 microns in diameter, entrained in Earth's regular one-bar atmosphere. And so instead of going high pressure, we go very small size in terms of the grain size. And so I dumped about 7 or 8 kilograms of this d volcanic dust, basically, and by the way, I've never seen anything act like this. You have this stuff in a bucket and you slosh it and it looks like a liquid sloshing. It is bizarre. Um, you, you've never, I mean, my dad does, he says that it reminds him of like a uh, dry cement mix before you add water. Maybe um, he's done more of that Oof. than I have. But, uh, but you load this stuff and then you launch the catapult and it creates this huge white cloud of dust. And literally when the dust settles, you look at the deposit and you can see exactly how the tiny pumice grains were caught up in air currents because you get all these like tongue shaped lobes um, of ejecta that um, actually they thin as they go away from the catapult. And then all of a sudden they get thicker and they thin and they go away and then they get thicker. And that's really strange because normally you would think that things would just thin as they move away from a crater instead of going away from the crater and then getting thicker. We call those, so there, it forms like a tall rim on the edges of these tongue-shaped 
lobe-shaped deposits. I'm talking with my hands right now, but that doesn't do us any good because I'm not on camera. Um, <laughs> we can feel your energy, Kirby. Okay. If you guys can feel Kirby's energy, send an emoji, right? <laughs> Rockets emojis for all that, that rocket fuel. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for the love, people. Okay. So, um, all right. So what we ended up doing, when I saw that, I was like, Eureka, oh my goodness, I actually missed our department Christmas party. We did this in December because of this momentous occasion, and my boss had to put my par Christmas party dinner in the fridge for me. So that's how big of a deal this was. Wow. And uh, um, we see really lobe-shaped lobe or tongue-shaped deposits with this uh, distal rim called a rampart on Mars. We think we see them on Venus, and we think, think we see them on Titan. But uh, Cassini's radar was didn't do... I mean, there's really coarse resolution on the surface of, of Titan. So we need to go back to Titan with higher resolution. Um, but we see lobe-shaped deposits around craters on Venus. We see a lot of that around Mars. And so by really using Earth's atmosphere to affect the emplacement of our laboratory ejecta, we were able to really easily recreate this really strange deposit of ejecta that we see all over Mars and Venus and that no one has completely satisfactorily explained. Um, for, in the case of Mars, people usually think that it's because the ground was muddy and it kind of does look like a mud splat. Um, and that like an asteroid hit uh, wet or icy ground, melted the ice, forming mud that then flowed out. But what I showed was that you actually don't need water to uh, to create these uh, types of ejected deposits. You could use water, but you don't have to use water. I made these completely dry without any water. And I shouldn't say I, I should say we. It was a team of us. Um, and, um, and, and so uh, this is wrong, but I like to joke that I undiscovered water on Mars. I mean, no, not, <laughs> not, not, not seriously. I just like to be provocative. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. All I'm saying is that you don't need water to create uh, these lobate uh, ejected deposits necessarily. Um, so that's what I'm doing for Venus. I also have a miniature version of this catapult and also and back in December. Um, and we made a miniature version of this catapult so that we could take it on reduced gravity parabolic airplane flights and simulate the emplacement of crater ejecta on low-gravity asteroids, and also other low-gravity places like the moon, where, uh, you know, gravity obviously isn't as important. And so we went up in an airplane, and we did 30 uh, big hills through the sky, 30 parabolic arcs, and we simulated Mars gravity, moon gravity, and asteroid and zero gravity with this catapult flinging sand and zero gravity and it was amazing. And we are still oh. analyzing the data. Uh, okay. We don't have results yet. Uh, we have it, all the video, all the data is in the form of videos. And I've got a, and we've got a team of people uh, analyzing uh, the video footage and uh, measuring measuring the thicknesses of things, measuring the speed of the particles. And um, we think that this will help us better understand the ejected deposits on things like asteroids. So, was this when you did your first zero G flight? No, this was. I've done now 10 zero-G flights. This was one of my right. 10 zero-G flights, yeah. Okay, okay. Because I think your first one was when uh, you told me about it, right? And, and I met you in New York after. Was that your very first zero-G flight? That was my very first zero-G flight. So for those... that was October of 2020. Wow. Okay. So for those who don't know what a zero G flight is, it's what Kirby was just describing. Uh, it's a parabolic flight where it ex recreates the sensation of zero gravity. Uh, you could definitely explain it a lot better than me. I have not been on it. Um, 
but it does this U shape. And as it's, you know, reaching that highest point of the curve, I think is that, is that, that's the point where you start to feel that, that zero gravity uh, that, that, effect through it. Yeah. Uh, you're coming the down. Plane, the plane goes up and actually as a plane starts pitching over, but is still going up. That's when zero G kicks in. Um, Got it. And because the airplane's tr- starting to not go up as much while your body still wants to go up. Uh, and then it curves over and then starts going down and then the airplane's going down more than your body wants to go down. Uh, and so you, your feet still don't touch the floor. Um, so yeah, uh, you get about 20 seconds of weightlessness as the airplane flies on these, uh, basically these roller coaster shaped hills through the sky, these parabolic arcs. Gosh, so, that is so cool. And yeah. so, so you ended up doing one of these cratering experiments on uh, a zero G flight, right. uh, like a miniature one though, I, I presume, a, you know, a miniature cratering experiment, not a miniature flight, a yeah. few feet long of, of the cratering experiment. Yeah, it was It's about six feet long or so about four feet wide. Um, was it in a box? How did it not have the sand not go everywhere? Yeah, we had to, we had to build this huge clear sided box with um, glove holes. We had six ports that really big, thick, long rubber gloves uh, attached to so that we could use our gloved hands to work on the inside of the box, but everything inside the box was contained because the last thing you want is sand floating around in zero gravity and getting in your eyes and nose and lungs. Yeah. Terrible. terrible. Yeah. So so like the, the hardest part, honestly, of our, of building and designing our experiment was building this, uh, contained clear glove box. Um, and then it was so heavy, we needed a forklift to load it into the airplane. Um, so, um, actually a little bit of a personal side here. Uh, um, I, I, as a scientist, I have to write grant proposals to NASA to bring in the money to pay for the science experiments and investigations and all the science research that we do. Um, and uh, I wrote a proposal to do this, these reduced gravity parabolic flight uh, cratering ejecta experiments. And it took like four tries, four or five tries to finally get it approved and funded. And so to celebrate winning my, not just my first grant proposal as an early career scientist, um, but also one having to do with parabolic flight, I celebrated by just going out uh, on the Zero-G website, gozerog.com, and buying my own ticket as a tourist. Um, and it's open to the general public. You can go on their website and buy a ticket. They're a little, they're, they're a little pricey, a little over uh, eight grand. Um, but I, I went and did that. It was amazing. And then Athena, we, we met up right after that uh, in New York. Um, and kind of told, and you're like the first person I told what it was like, and it's still amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, By the uh, way, I just want to take a moment just to congrats on g- getting it approved. So here's a quick, uh, uh, oh, pl- applause. Never mind. Never mind. I was trying to get in real quick with, with a quick uh, clapping of, a, of an audience cheering. And it was actually a pronunciation of the word applaud. So <laughs> never mind. But, but regardless, here's yeah. my clap. Um, that is very exciting. I, I want to touch on that for a moment yeah. if you'd like. Otherwise, you want to finish up a thought a bit? Well, I'll just say that, uh, you know, I had so much fun. I went a second time and brought a friend from work with me. Um, and, uh, and then, and then, yeah, anyway, so I've, I've been turned into a zero G junkie, but go ahead with your thought. It was, um, you know, getting denied three times and then finally getting accepted the fourth time for a grant proposal. Um, what is that like? Is, Is it just understood that that can happen and then you just have to apply? Is it within the same like time frame is it quarterly what, what is that sure. that like and how do you not get i guess like i'm sure you get a little bit disappointed but but how how do you just say hey it's okay just gonna move forward and apply again yeah it's it's kind of that i mean i can you can only apply once a year 
So this this oh, represented wow. like four years of trying, and um, you you write a grant proposal with the with the mental mindset that it's probably not going to get selected, and that's that's hard. Like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That's kind of it, it's kind of a discouraging exercise in in quasi futility, um, and you just have to be bullheaded and determined enough um, to do it, and you also have to be your own worst critic. Um, without being like emotionally unhealthy about it or anything, um, and and without having too much negative self talk, um, you you really have to like you have to be like okay, I, I can make this better, and then you give it to a colleague, and you have them like take their red pen and just tear through it and just find out every little nitpicky thing in it that's wrong. Um, they give it back to you, and then you fix that stuff, and you make it as good as you can get it in the time that you have, which is never enough time, and you just have to be okay with that. Um, you turn it into NASA. And NASA convenes a review panel, and you just have to hope that the review panel scores it high enough, and that that the selecting official at NASA headquarters uh, approves it and and awards the money. Um, and and the more you do this, the the better you get at writing them, and y- your selection rate goes up. A typical selection rate for a scientist in in planetary science is around fifteen percent. Well, that's not for typical scientists. That's that's you know. Well, for any one grant, there's only fifteen percent chance that it's going to be selected. Um, I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. So that's a really so that's small a really percentage small... to yeah. kind of like take the yeah take the leap. So yeah, you've got to write like you've got to submit like six times for you know one to get selected, and it just takes determination and and knowing it being resilient enough. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, a SpaceX Dragon crew capsule named Resilience. And I think that's a great name because you, it just takes resilience to just keep trying if it's important enough to you. Um, resilience, which mission was that? Ooh, um, I'm looking it up right now. It was, it was crew one. It might've been crew one. Okay. I, I'm looking at the demonstration mission too. The one I have a 3D Endeavor. printed model of was I Endeavor. The, I think the, the the first test flight with uh, Doug Hurley and Bob Bankin was Endeavor. And it I was. think it was the one after that named was named Resilience. It, it, was, it, it was. It was. I, it just, was. Found I just found it. Found it. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, so that being said, you went from purchasing your own zero G flight so that you could just do this research finally and just you know experience yeah zero gravity. Um, was that your first time experiencing zero gravity? Like, did you ever experience like G force? I, I guess zero gravity is, is, is a different feeling than a sensation I mean, than you would on a multi-axis trainer. Right. So like I've been in a human sized centrifuge on numerous occasions and you know, I've, I've experienced up to six G six times the force of gravity. Oh my gosh. Did you, did you throw up after? No, I didn't throw up. I okay. felt so sick after doing a four G uh, yeah, four four G forces uh, on a multi-axis trainer at Spaceport America. I I couldn't talk afterwards. I was so nauseous and dizzy. I was like, I gotta get to space one day. What's wrong with me? I need to get better at this. I mean, you just you'll, you'll you might be sick in space for the first two days when you get to you'll get a oh, chance to get to space. Right. I know you. You'll get there. Um, I think you will too, for sure. Right. Whoever <laughs> thinks Kirby is gonna go to space, send over an emoji right now because that's for sure. That's for sure gonna happen. Um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, October of 2020 was my first time. Well, it was my first time floating around in zero gravity. Um, about 10 years ago, actually longer ago than that, I went up with a friend of mine with a small Cessna airplane, and we did a bunch of uh, parabolic arcs that only lasted a couple seconds. I don't totally count that because we were strapped in and it didn't last very long. We couldn't really float around. 
Um, but yeah, this was like my first, in October of 2020, my celebratory zero gravity flight was my first time experiencing it. Um, and it is one of the most magical sensations ever. Wow. Cause, cause you then went on to do it. You said 10 more times and now it. you're a coach uh, for yeah. those who, you know, if, so if anyone here ends up buying a ticket, you might end up being coached by Kirby. Is, is that how it, how it works? You'd be, yeah, exactly. you'd coach right. customers. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I have to thank the zero gravity corporation for, uh, inviting me as a contracted coach. Um, and you know, they, they contact me and I, for certain flights and, um, I'll go to the look, they fly out of different airports around the country. Uh, I just got back this last weekend from Austin, Texas, uh, for, uh, two, uh, zero gravity flights. I, I coached, uh, just this last weekend. And, um, so a zero gravity coach, and this is separate from my, uh, employment at Johns Hopkins APL. This is my, this is my uh, fun side gig. Um, and I'm just thrilled to get to take members of the general public and show them how to have the most fun, comfortable time exploring the cosmos remotely through weightlessness, um, because it's truly a space-like experience you can have on Earth, or without at least leaving the atmosphere, without flying any higher than a commercial airliner. Um, it is truly a space-like experience. And each, each commercial flight is 15 parabolas, 15 arcs. Um, we do Mars gravity, moon gravity, Mars gravity is 38% that of earth, moon gravity, 17%. And it's weird between Mars gravity and moon gravity. Uh, there's like this switch that happens where with Mars gravity, um, it's sort of like diet earth gravity, your intuition about how to move around in regular earth gravity still kind of works in terms of walking and jumping and whatever. You're just really light, but moon gravity is more like heavy zero gravity it's you, 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 it takes so long to come back down to the floor after each step that it's sort of like you're weightless in between steps. You're, you aren't weightless. You've still got 17% of your weight. Um, but it's, you can do these crazy, like, you know, Trinity on the matrix where she like runs up on yeah. the wall for a long time. You can do that in moon gravity. You can, you can start off running and like kind of run on the wall of the airplane for a while and come back down to the floor. It's crazy fun. Then you can do like you can do like backflips and do like one and a half rotations. Um, it's, it's, huh. and, and um, I actually emailed uh, Dr. Jack Schmidt, who is the only PhD geologist to have gone to the moon. He walked on the moon in 1972 on the Apollo 17 mission. And uh, as a geologist, um, I know him professionally. I see him at conferences and I emailed him and I said, Hey Jack, when you were on the moon, what was the best way that you found for walking around? Um, because I'm going on this parabolic flight and I'd love some tips for how to do that. And so he wrote back and he said that what he found to be effective was what he called a toe push and glide. You kind of, it's sort of like a, a miniature kangaroo hop. You keep your feet together and you kind of hop, but instead of using your knees, you just use your ankles. That's all you got to use. And that allows you to stay in control enough so that you don't just like hit your head into the ceiling of the airplane because the normal bounce in your step is enough to send your head like shooting into the ceiling. So you have to be careful in moon gravity. Um, and I found that to be accurate. And that's the sort of thing I like to share with the, uh, with the customers that I coach is, is fun little stories like that. What's also fun in both moon and Mars gravity is to do push-ups. Um, in fact, you can do a, and even if you're don't work out, you hate working out, you can still do a push-up, and you can actually jump using your arms, send your body into the air and then land on your feet just by doing a push-up. Mars and moon gravity. That's a lot of fun. 
That sounds um, like it's so much fun. I, I you're you're really really selling these zero G flights. I would love to do one. That just sounds so awesome. Um, oh, it is so much fun. How they long does it last fun. when you're going up and then coming yeah, back down? So, so each parabola, each zero gravity parabola is twenty seconds, and you do twelve of those: one Mars, two Moon, and twelve zero gravity parabolas. Um, and so you end up with a, a cumul- cumulative of like three or four minutes of weightlessness on one of these flights, which is the same or a little bit longer than a suborbital space flight with Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin. Not to poo-poo those, because I'd love to do that too, um, but it's about the same amount of weightlessness as on a suborbital space flight, just in, in 20-second chunks. Wow. Um, that that's is so... To, like, fly the length of the cabin, to, like... Uh, I, I've taken to uh, doing, like, a whole bunch of, like, gymnastic, like, uh, backflips a bunch of times really fast in the middle of the cabin... Um, that's, that's a lot of fun, uh, rolling up in a cannonball and just shooting around the airplane. Um, <laughs> I mean, one time I was, I was, um, getting a damp, uh, a cold washcloth, uh, for one of our customers to help them with some of the motion, uh, unease there. And I was, I was, I, I for, I was briefly buckled in one of the seats in the back of the airplane. Um, and I'm just, I'm just minding my own business. And all of a sudden a washcloth just floats by my face. And I oh it. my gosh. Yeah. How often does that happen where people will get sick on one of these flights? You know, most people do really well. And, um, That's so good. and most people will take Dramamine, um, and that helps with emotion sickness. Um, very few people actually have, uh, really bad problems with emotion. But we, but one of the things that one of the preventative measures is to like put a, a cold washcloth on someone's neck. Okay. I guess it helps that it's such a short flight. It's like manageable. And then there's these breaks between each, uh, each simulator, zero gravity or gravity right. mock simulation, um, yeah. which I think would probably help. I think that that would, that would for sure help me uh, yeah. <laughs> thinking, thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, I like just, it's a bit more manageable. Yeah. Um, and so that's, wow. that's, that's kind of like beyond that. And, and, and more people start getting really uncomfortable. I see. Yeah. Cause then that, it would just like really kick in. Um, so that, that's where you're currently at right now with doing zero G flights. Do you have any upcoming zero G flights that you're going to be coaching? Um, I have not been scheduled for any upcoming zero G flights, but you know, I'm still in the, in the rotation in the coach rotation, uh, zero G, uh, contracts out with the, with coaches all around the country so that there's, um, wherever, whichever airport they're flying out of, uh, they've got relatively local coaches. Now, sometimes they don't have a local coach and they have to fly, they have to fly people in. Um, but I'm not currently scheduled for any upcoming coaching flights. Um, that said, either later this fall, 2022, or early next spring, 2023, I do have another zero-gravity flight that's a, a NASA-sponsored research flight doing more of the catapult stuff. So I'll be back on kind of the researcher-customer side of the uh, table uh, for, for that upcoming flight. And um, that's actually a special flight where it's, it's, it's 30 parabolas instead of 15, and it's 10 Mars gravity, 10 Moon gravity, and 10 zero gravity. Wow. That is so, so incredible. And, and Kirby, really, it sounds so amazing to just hear you not only just like talk about these things, like whatever it is that you're researching, but, uh, and like the work that you're working in, but kind of just your interactions with people and then how enthusiastic you sound when you talk about it, because like that is something so 
special that I think a lot of um, people it really, really, really resonates with. Um, and I think that that'll help encourage more people to uh, try something like this that, that maybe didn't know or maybe didn't even know about it. To hear about something like a zero-G flight, maybe for the first time today, someone here is listening to this and this is their first time hearing about it and just hearing how you speak about it, how exciting it sounds. I bet that there's so many people that you probably inspire to to do this, oh, to do something know. that they maybe didn't know existed, or on top of that, do something maybe they're scared of. Maybe it's like kind of scary for them, and they're like, "I'm I'm going to do it anyway because you know I I heard this guy talk about it who is just like an incredible planetary geologist, and he is one of their coaches, and if he can do it, and he he maybe he's my coach, then I think I could do it too. Um, so okay. I just wanted to like. Yeah, take take that moment to just say that. I, that, I think that's very, very special um, to kind of segue into probably my final question here before we turn to the audience is why is that important? Like, wh- why do you think it's important to engage with people, to be enthusiastic, to communicate science in all different ways with um, everyone, like the public, like every person that you could outside of, say, NASA or your own research? Right. Um, I love that question, Athena. Uh, science is one aspect of life that brings pleasure, that brings enjoyment to this thing called life, to, to living. Um, you know, I'm a scientist because I'm just curious how the world works and I'm observant and, and it doesn't matter if it's in planetary geology or not. I, I just love to learn. Um, and I've always been that way. Um, and we explore space and we, do science, we figure out how nature works um, just because we're curious. And in my experience, acquiring that knowledge is a pleasurable experience. It, it makes life more fun and interesting. Now, of course, there's a lot of practical reasons to do science, like discovering um, or inventing mRNA vaccines that uh, beat, beat back COVID. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting science behind that, but it was invented for practical reasons. And, and that's great. There's a lot of very practical science going into fighting and understanding climate change. Um, and so there's lots of practical reasons to do science. Um, but the reason that I'm into science is just because I'm curious and just because satisfying that curiosity uh, brings me great enjoyment. And I think it can bring more people enjoyment and increase the quality of their lives in intangible ways, not with material goods, but with kind of intellectual cognitive wealth. Um, and, and, you know, we don't necessarily need more scientists. What we need is more people to be scientifically engaged, scientifically literate and scientifically interested. So if someone's not a professional scientist, um, they can still be an amateur scientist. And I don't mean that in any negative way at all. And where they just love science, they just love learning about the way the universe works and discovering new things. Uh, using your brain is, can be one of the most fun things you can do. And, um, and then of course there's all the practical benefits, uh, to that. Cheering you on, cheering you on, cheering you on here. Everyone give a round of applause to Kirby. No, if, if, if anyone, (laughs) like a news editor at one of the major news outlets, um, having more science stories just in the daily news, um, getting, getting news feeds in your news aggregator on your phone, on your Instagram, on your Twitter, on all your social media handles, like just filling your news feeds with with um maybe a little bit less politics and more science and um i think to me that makes for a much more interesting life i think wow 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, I think that that's also what's brought me uh, so much more humbleness as well and just so much more uh, perspective uh, and different types of perspective to the world and to people around me is is by surrounding myself with more scientific literature, yeah. uh, just subscribing to a ton of different newsletters online from, from different scientific publications. Uh, and it's really, yeah, I think it, it plays such an important role to, um, I, I think, just the adding color to our entire life. Ooh. Ooh, that's um, a good way to put it. I mean, it added color to our life. Thank you, Kirby. Thanks. <laughs> um, so if you're comfortable with it now, uh, I'm going to turn to the audience and see if anyone has any questions. Let me go ahead and just open it up. If anyone wants to call in and join, all you have to do is tap the call in button on the bottom right of your screen. It looks like we've already got a caller. All right. Joshua, you are on the mic. What's up? Looks like just bottom right, tap on the microphone button. Uh, if you are mute, so, oh, that's so know, good to hear. Um, you know, some of the things I kind of want to get into uh, the record here is thinking about nanotech, nano sheets, and material regenerative science and agriculture, you know, and how we're working with our current material world in a non-regenerative way, a non-sustainable way, and really looking at how we regenerate the materials that we use to create the things that allow us to get off this planet and not because we're ruining it, but because we've saved it. Now, I know that's really freaking lofty, right? Um, but, you know, I've been doing research in this space for six years, independent, non-PhD oriented. Um, and I feel like I've seen enough resources around the globe now and talked to enough people that this is possible with i'm going to bring it up athena i'm sorry with hemp um you know is a oh. food fuel and fiber and medicine potential now we're currently not growing it on the level that we need to for infrastructure etc but it is possible to do that in the next 30 years and if we're thinking out like 270 years as opposed to let's say every three months we need to sell a new company maybe we're actually getting to the place where we need to for this planet and then getting to space and really funding NASA in ways that we haven't even comprehended yet to do that quickly. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if there was a question in there. Kirby, did you, did you want to comment on anything? Or otherwise, Joshua, did you have a specific question for Kirby? Yeah. I guess my specific question is, how much research have you done into nanosheet technology in regards to insulation for lowering the cost of rocketry um, and its load potential? Okay, so I haven't done any research into nanotech. I'm a, I'm a, so I'm a planetary geologist, and so I do experiments and use images to study the geology of other planetary surfaces. Um, I, you know, I've got colleagues in all kinds of areas of like material science. Um, I know at Johns Hopkins APL, we've got a lot of people working in material science, um, including nanotechnology. And um, um, I, I just saw an article, I think it might have been in Nature or Science, how scientists uh, were able to get 3D polymerization, uh, I, th I think that's right, um, where instead of making uh, long two-dimensional ester chains or polymer polymerized chains, they're able to get them in sheets. And that has huge potential for making really strong um, plastics, basically, um, that have been, and I'm talking way outside my league here, but, um, you know, I know there's kinds of, you know, in, in um, things dealing in the nano realm that in material science that are making revolutionary materials for access to space, for computers, 
for uh, 3D printing and simplifying the construction of complex shapes. Um, you know, there's also a type of pigment that I think uses carbon nanotubes. It's called Vanta Black, and it uh, it, re it reflects like less than one percent of the light falling on it. Uh, if you were to paint something with Vanta Black, you would only see a silhouette. You would not see any texture on its surface, um, and that has different applications. Uh, as well. So um, I can't speak any more specifically about nanotechnology, but I know it's permeating um, a lot of aspects of uh, of society, including uh, space exploration. Yeah, that's yeah, still pretty, still cool, pretty that cool that you knew so much, Kirby. So <laughs> thank you so much. I got never cease to amaze me of, of, of some of the, the info that you just, you have like buried away in your noggin. Um, so I guess, yeah, if, if anyone has any questions, um, I guess more so pertaining to like uh, like the research that we talked about, zero G flights, um, like cratering, uh, cratering research, uh, stuff that has to do with the moon or Titan or dwarf planets. Uh, now I think would, would be your time. Looks like we've got, um, another caller, Nicholas. So when you're ready, you are on the mic. Oh, Hey, thank you. I, um, I was going to ask, I studied in school. I took one class called paleoclimatology. And perhaps it was sort of, you know, one of the more interesting classes uh, that I've taken as a student. And I'd recommend, obviously, anyone consider a class with a similar title. Uh, so my question for you is, have you thought of collaborating with people who have, uh, I don't know, tried to say, you know, what it... So, is this an impact crater? And then if it is, can we be more specific about when it happened and how it happened? Have, has that ended up happening to you a lot academically? Anyway, I'll just go back on hold here. Yeah, thanks for the, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, a lot of what uh, planetary geologists do in some way or another has to get back to how old craters are um, on any planetary surface from asteroids to the moon to Venus to Earth even. And there are a lot of principles of geology that we can use to determine when that happened. Now, why, why would we be interested in when a crater formed? Well, a lot of geology is really forensics. It's something happened in the past that left clues as to what happened. And all we have now is the present clues, and we use those clues to reconstruct the past, including, you mentioned climatology, paleoclimatology, including what the climate was like then. Um, uh, so on Earth, a lot of impact craters have been eroded away by water, by tectonic events, by lava flows, by resurfacing. There's uh, an impact structure in northern Labrador in Canada uh, called the Mastastin Impact Structure, and it's, it's now a, a crater lake. And you can kind of see that there's a crater there, but it's mostly been eroded away. Um, and, uh, and, and, on, and, and craters superimpose other craters. And so if there is a crater that formed on top of another crater and you've got a circle on top of like a crescent, you know that the crescent-shaped crater is older and came first because it had that other crater get superimposed on top of it. And then craters degrade with time because of lots of different weathering conditions, even on the moon. Uh, micrometeorite bombardment will soften and eventually erase craters, uh, even on the moon. And so you can kind of get a qualitative sense for how old things are based on how, how fresh their morphology is. If they've got nice crisp rims and nice deep bull-shaped interiors um, and a lot of blocky boulders uh, in their ejecta. Um, and then if we have samples from around these craters, we can do radioisotope age determination where we can look at the amount of 
parent to daughter isotopes, um, uh, like radioactive decay products, and we can infer how when those rocks cooled from having been molten in the heat of an impact. Um, and and so there and so really that's the only way to quantitatively um, with numbers get at how old craters are. Um, but there's these other geologic techniques that can tell us qualitatively uh, what happened first, second, third, fourth, etc. Um, uh, you know, on the moon, you could potentially use ground penetrating radar to look at buried impact craters, craters that formed and then eventually got filled in, but maybe still left an impression with um, with the density of the wall rock involved or what have you. Um, so, so there's a lot. And so, um, you know, one of the things we're looking at with the Venus cratering is, uh, it, it seems as if having a really dense atmosphere makes the craters smaller than it quote unquote should be if it had formed in a vacuum. And so if we see craters that are smaller than they seems like they should be on Venus, and if we've got other ways of really inferring that's the case, we might be able to place constraints and figure out, uh, the evolution of Venus's really thick atmosphere. We think that prior to a billion years ago, Venus had a much more Earth-like, much, much, much thinner atmosphere. And so Venus's thick atmosphere is relatively young. It's only a billion years old. But for the first three and a half billion <laughs> years of Venus's history, we think it had um, a relatively thin, more habitable atmosphere. And uh, impact craters are one way to kind of use geology to uh, infer the past climate, the paleoclimate, uh, on Venus, and similar things can be done on the Earth, uh, Mars, Titan, uh, places with atmospheres, and even, yeah, well, we're talking about climate, so, yeah, places with atmospheres, so those are the four planets where, where you can really do that. Wow, well, thank oh, you for, thank that, you for that, and thank you, Nicholas, for that question. Uh, we've probably got time for maybe about one more question, so I see that TJ is here in the caller queue, so I'm going to go ahead and make you the next caller. All right, TJ, you are on the mic. So much great information. Thank you, Athena and Kirby. This has just been wonderful. Of course. Thank you. We saw a recent story come out. The uh, the Chinese rover uh, found glass beads on, on the lunar, on the moon, on our closest satellite. So it kind of reinforces what we originally thought with the first Apollo mission, finding green glass as well. Um, does that suggest that our sun is micronovid before? Does that kind of support that argument? I know this is kind of really up-to-date information, but what's your, what's your thoughts on that, Kirby? Yeah, so uh, the so the glass you're talking about is a really common occurrence with impact cratering. Um, so I, I've not heard that term micronovid before uh, for the sun, um, but uh, but pretty much any time an impact crater forms on the moon, whether it's from literally a grain of dust making a crater a few microns across to an asteroid forming craters a thousand kilometers across or more it always creates a little bit of, or maybe a lot bit of impact melt where the heat of that impact actually melts rock. And it's sort of like you have, and depending on the size of the impact, you might have something that kind of looks like a lava lake. The newly formed crater will have a fair bit of molten uh, rock in it. Now, if that molten rock cools quickly enough and it will get cool quickly enough if it's kind of like splashed into the vacuum of space above the moon's surface and then it cools, it quenches, and then it falls back on the moon's surface, um, when 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 rocky when molten rock cools quickly, the uh, individual elements do not have time. They literally don't have time to grow into crystals, into mineral crystals. Um, so the composition is still the same as the original rock, but the crystallography is very different. So you're not going to have crystals of like 
the minerals plagioclase or pyroxene in there, but you'll still have the magnesium and the silicon and the oxygen and the iron and things like that. Um, and so, so this, so probably these, you know, glass bead discoveries from the Chinese lunar rover, I think it's U2-2. Um, uh, I mean, it's interesting. Um, uh, they, they, they could be glass beads from impact. Oh, but if they're glass spherules, if they're little spheres, they could be um, the results of volcanism where uh, there might have been like a volcanic fire fountain spraying lava into the vacuum right above the moon's surface. Um, and then they quickly quench and then, then surface tension, you know, pulls them into a sphere as they're momentarily weightless as they're flying above the moon's surface um, and would pull them into a sphere and cool. Um, and yeah, you, you, you referred to the, the glass, the green glass discovered on Apollo 15. Uh, that was in, uh, summer of 1971. They discovered it at the Hadley Apennine landing site. And then they discovered orange glass, uh, orange glass beads, um, in the soil, um, by Shorty Crater on Apollo 17. Uh, and it's really fun to listen to the astronaut, uh, voice recordings of that because you can just hear in their voice. They're just really excited. Like, there is orange soil here. They're kind of making fun of each other. It's like, no, it's just a reflection off your visor. And they're kind of teasing each other back and forth. They're like, no, it actually is orange. And we've got it back in the lab on Earth now. And yep, it's orange. Um, and it's the, and if you look at it under a microscope, it's a little glass bead. So that was probably formed from a volcanic fire fountain. But anytime you've got molten rock, whether it's from an impact event or from a volcanic eruption, and that rock cools faster than crystals have time to grow, it's going to form a glassy uh, material. Wow. wow. I've been, I've over, been here over here Googling these images, <laughs> by the way. Who else right now is doing that, has their computer out and just looking up these pictures? I did not know about the green color when it came to glass beads uh, for the moon and orange as well. Um, gosh, that's so fascinating. It, it makes me kind of excited to think about that there's like uh, a bunch of other colors in space. So they're like kind of just like grayish grays and sometimes hues of yellow. <laughs> That some some other kind of some some browns that that's that, that is so so cool. Uh, thank you for that question, TJ. Um, is there are there any other questions um, from the chat? If anyone wants to either type it in uh, or come on and ask a question. Um, otherwise, Kirby, this has been super cool. This has been so great. So thank you so much for for coming on and taking this time um, just to chat about literally everything when it comes to. <laughs> moons and or or we should call them planets or zero g flights you don't have to memorize all of them yeah don't have to memorize all of them this is true um okay looks like we've got one more from nicholas we're going to take that and that will be our last caller sounds good all right nicholas you are on the microphone oh hey uh thanks um the uh we didn't learn about this i don't think in paleoclimatology though it has relevance is um, what could this tell us, if anything, the researcher generally involved with about the theories of the creation of Earth's main moon, our moon, the moon we call it. Anyway, that's it. It's <laughs> my question. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I, so what what Nicholas is referencing is um, what we think formed uh, our moon. So, so. Um, a number of lines of evidence point to the likelihood that a small planet about the size of Mars collided with the proto-Earth um, right after they formed. Like, So if Earth is like 4.5 billion years old, this happened like 4.45 billion years ago, like really like right at the beginning. Um, and that this there was this kind of a glancing blow, fairly slow. And by slow, I mean like, 
seven or eight kilometers per second um, impact that that uh, uh, merged the two iron nickel cores of these two planets, Proto Earth and this other Mars sized planet that's been named Thea. Uh, and then the the mantles and crusts of, of parts of both of these planets got spun off into Earth orbit to coalesce to form the moon. Um, now, the entire Proto Earth slash Earth would have been completely molten um, in that whole impact. And so there's no surviving impact crater from that. And so that makes this hypothesis a little tricky to test. There are other ways of testing it, though. And similarly, there's, there's, you know, you know, there's no crater on the moon that corresponds to its own uh, formation. Um, the reason we think this is that the ratio of different oxygen isotopes in Earth rocks and moon rocks is almost identical. In fact, for decades, we thought they were identical. Turns out they're a little bit different from, uh, from new analysis of uh, Apollo moon samples. Um, so there is a slight oxygen isotope difference. They would call an oxygen isotope excursion. Um, uh, there's also differences in thickness of the moon's crust. The moon's so, so one side of the moon always faces Earth. The other side always faces away. And the, the crust on the far side of the moon is significantly thicker than the crust on the near side of the moon. I, I compare it to Chicago versus New York pizza crust. And <laughs> um, that has led some people to think that maybe the far side of the moon had these really slow impacts of like little moonlets that might have like where like several small moonlets sort of collided to form our larger moon. Um, I don't know. Um, there's still a little, you know, there. And then there's variations on this whole giant impact hypothesis for the formation of the moon. Was it was it one giant impact or was it several medium sized impacts? Um, people have done computer simulations, computer simulations to show how this would work. Um and um, there's still a lot of research to be done. And, and uh, I'm not sure we'll ever know conclusively. Honestly, though, what would really help is to get way more samples from more places on the moon, including samples that came from deep underground, um, because it's these samples that would have come from like the moon's mantle, this place between the crust and the core, where uh, we can test hypotheses related to how small terrestrial planets like the moon cool and what we say differentiate um into uh, a, a lighter um crust and then a more medium density mantle and then a very dense iron nickel core and we can start testing these hypotheses and so probably a lot of the clues to the formation of the moon will come when we get more samples from many locations on the moon and hopefully that will start with uh our commercial uh scientific payloads that are going to be flying to the moon starting uh probably early next year um, and also hopefully with the return of astronauts to the moon with the Artemis program. So we'll hopefully be getting a lot more moon rocks to do a lot more uh, laboratory science on those rocks. And we can start getting more at the form- how the moon formed and therefore, uh, at the same time, understand Earth's earliest geologic history. Well, hopefully, well, hopefully you, get, you to get to be on some, on of, some those of those missions. missions. <laughs> that would be, that would super, be cool. super cool. Yep, it would be um, I, th- I think I'm a bit getting... of an echo. I don't know if there we go. Okay, that just stopped now. Perfect. Um, yeah, Kirby. Uh, I really hope that you get to go on a moon mission. Maybe you'll be part of the Artemis missions, or maybe something else in the future. Maybe on Starship, uh, yeah. which is also now going to be part of Artemis. Uh, an additional mission has just been been purchased. Um, but Kirby, that that is so so cool. Everything that you've shared. Thank you so much for your time for being here. Uh, where can people connect with you or follow along in your adventures? So either your Twitter or anything else you'd like to share. Yeah, thanks. So on Twitter, I'm at NASA Man 58. Um, I'm putting that in the chat right now. Um, 
on Instagram. Uh, it's my full first, middle, and last name, Kirby Daniel Runyon. Um, uh, and I'm also on LinkedIn. I know that's not as cool as the other social media platforms, but it's getting there. So LinkedIn will be cool one day. Uh, and those are really the main platforms that people can connect with me on. All righty. So I know you said that you're going to write that in the chat. I'm also typing that up as you speak. Um, and I will also, of course, share that in the caption once this episode is published. Um, one final thought. I think there were some links that you maybe wanted to share with yeah. us. Do you want to put that in the chat now? You can do that. Otherwise, I can also, of course, share that in the caption once this episode is published. Yeah, I can start to put that in the chat now. Um, and I'll I'll talk through it as I'm doing that, if that's okay. One of them uh, is um, I, I just did an interview today for, I believe it's Scientific American, on the Neptune Odyssey mission concept that I was got to be the project scientist on. And people can watch a cool video and read our full report if they're so inclined at, uh, at uh, neptuneodyssey.jhuapl.edu. Um, and uh, they can also learn more about the uh, Zero Gravity Corporation at gozerog.com. And I'll be putting that in the chat here uh, as well. Um, so uh, those, are, those are two websites that come to mind that people might be so inclined to check out. Oh, and, and, a, and a third one, if I may, is just uh, what uh, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab is up to with regards to space. And that is at uh, civspace, C-I-V space dot J-H-U-A-P-L dot E-D-U. And that's where we do a lot of work with and for NASA and people can follow along with what we're up to there. All right. Awesome. And you said that you're, you're putting that in the chat right now. I just put it in the chat. Oh, oh, maybe, maybe the, maybe things have been coming through the last couple of lives that I did. I didn't quite see any comments or questions from anybody until after the episode published. So I apologize if anyone's been typing anything. I haven't seen your comments, but maybe we'll see it in the in the aftermath once the episode is published. So Kirby, those links will come through. Um, I don't see them, but as long as as long as you do, maybe, yeah, maybe I, everyone I'm else sees it too. Comments here. You are. Oh, lucky you. Oh, that's so great. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, maybe it's just on my end. Um, well, already awesome. Well, again, Kirby, thank you so much for, for coming on, uh, for, for, for spreading your enthusiasm, your knowledge and everything that you're doing, uh, just in the world and in space, uh, with every single one of us on here. I can't wait to follow in your adventures and see, see what else you're going to be up to. Well, thanks Athena. That's very kind of you. And thanks for running such a fun podcast and that reaches, reaches people for space and science. Thanks for what you do too. Oh, of course. Alrighty, everyone. Well, I'm going to go ahead and play that outro music as that we all, I think, like to enjoy. And then we are going to sign off. So thank you all so much again for being here. I hope you guys get to get outside, look up at the sky, and maybe do some stargazing. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And until next time, as always, Ad Astra. <laughs>